Good morning, everybody, and welcome again to Encounter Church. Listen, uh, both of our locations, we've got a Stop the Drift display with those little index cards hanging on them, crowdsourcing different ways that we're stopping spiritual, financial, relational drift from taking place. Your assignment, should you choose to accept it, and I hope you do, is to leave today, grab one of those cards from the clothespin uh, line, and put it into practice this week. We've been putting them up there for the last three weeks, different ways. We're stopping the drift. Now's the time. Take one down, put it into practice, display it where it reminds you. If everybody takes one and there's no cards left by 1045, they're going to come to 915 next week. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Fulton Heights, you've got a display out there as well. If there's none uh, left over after, uh, after worship today, we will make sure that we get some more back on there for part five in the conclusion of Stop the Drift next week. Um, today we're continuing, like I said, this series, part four of Stopping the Drift. So far in this series, we've been talking about these different ways that we're stopping different kinds of spiritual drift from taking place. Uh, and, and today is no exception. It's a unique kind of drift, though, that we're stopping. We're talking about stopping the kind of spiritual drift that, that doesn't set in when things are going uh, badly, when things are going wrong. It's a kind of drift that doesn't come up when things are all falling apart. It's a special, it's a unique kind of drift. It starts to take place when things are going well. It's the kind of drift that happens when, when like, like, like life is, is firing. And I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of okay. You have an opportunity to like take, you know, check your breath and, and, and get your legs uh, underneath you again. It's, it's the kind of drift that happens when things are going well. In particular, three areas that you can start to think of. It's, uh, it's what we'd call a, around here, we have a 3P person. It's, it's power, it's prestige, it's possessions. You have a level of, of power. Things are going well. Drift. Drift is possible. Uh, there's authority in your life. You walk into a meeting, you're running the meeting. Uh, you show up at the company, you show up at the division meeting, and, and you are the division leader, right? You have a measure of power at your disposal. Maybe even you own the company. Like there's, there's power that you have. And so spiritual drift is a temptation when things are going well. You have power. Maybe you have a, a measure of prestige. It's not power, it's not authority, but it's it's arguably better than that. It's influence, right? You don't have to be the decision maker, but when there's a time for a decision to be made, it's like the heads kind of look at you. They wonder what you think because you have so much influence. Maybe you're the smartest person in the room of whatever room that you walk into. Like there's a level of influence, prestige that you carry. Drift is a potential. Or the last one about yeah, possessions. And we're just like acknowledging that people with a lot of stuff, people with a lot of money, we tend to look at as being good decision makers. We tend to look at and, and care about what, we th about what they think. It, it doesn't always make sense, and we get that. Maybe some of you, maybe you earned what you have, and so you have a lot of possessions, you have a lot of stuff. Maybe you were, maybe you were born into it, right? And that's the reason why you have, you didn't necessarily develop it on your own. Maybe later on in life, you married into it. And so you get how strange it is that all of a sudden one day people start to view you differently because, because all of a sudden you have a lot of resources, you have a lot of stuff, money, possessions, and people look at you and they're like, he's, a, he's funny, I like him. And you're like, I've been making the same dumb jokes my whole life. It's only now you think I'm funny. I'm not funny, I just have money, right? It's power, prestige, possessions. You're a 3P person. Maybe you're a 1P or 2P. Or some kind of, a, some kind of a, a mix of all of these things together. And, and if that's you, 
things are going well, a certain kind of spiritual drift could take place, a kind of spiritual drift called pride. I'm a preacher, so they're all going to start, this whole sermon is going to start with P this morning. (laughs) I want to kind of acknowledge, though, some of you are going, I don't have power, I don't have prestige or influence, I don't have possessions, I don't have a lot of stuff. This message does not apply to me. Listen, come on, come on. We know know better than that, right? Because we could drop you into a place in the world, into so many places in the world, where people live, three billion people on this planet live on less than $2 a day. And you wouldn't argue with them about whether or not you're a 3P person, whether or not this drift applies to you. You wouldn't argue at all because you'd be embarrassed. Because you know, like, wherever you got dropped onto this world, you could probably make one or two phone calls and get the resources together to get you out and get you home. Every single person listening to this has some level, has some mix of one or more of these three Peace. So pride is this temptation to pull you away. And, it, and it's not this good kind of pride. Not this good kind. I'm proud of my kids. I'm proud of my church for doing this, like, these really awesome things, being on the move. Oh, no, no, no. It's this insidious. It's this nasty kind of pride. The kind of pride that the author of Proverbs writes to in, in, in Proverbs 16, 18. He says, pride goes before the fall. This haughty before destruction, this haughty spirit, this is like puffed up prideful kind of spirit that goes before the fall. Pride leads to destruction. And so what we're going we're to see this morning, what some of you have, have seen around you is that this certain kind of pride doesn't puff us up at all. This kind of pride is actually a prison enclosing us. It's this kind of prison that keeps us, that keeps us in arguing a point, even when we know it's probably not the best point that we could make. It, it keeps us from needing to have the final word in like every argument or even every conversation. It's just this prideful kind of prison that, that keeps us, that keeps us from admitting I'm wrong. There's like 5% of this that I can own and I own that. It's this kind of pride that's actually a prison that keeps us from admitting that there's something that we don't know, that we don't necessarily have all of the tools in the toolbox to address this problem and I need help. This kind of pride is a prison that could take more than our relationships. It could take more than our finances. It could take our whole selves. A little bit later on in the message, I want to set it up with a biblical story first. But I share a story of a close friend of mine who, this thing almost took everything. A hospital visit, a scare, a very terrified wife and family, a sold business, a cross-country move, and, and like picking up this, this book that's an old book, a very old book, and he's picking it up, Mere Christianity. It's written by C.S. Lewis, not a current bestseller. And he's reading through it. And, and one of the lines in there, we are never going to forget, one of the lines in there, you can't look up at God when you're looking down on everyone else. This pride thing is a prison. And I'm telling you that God will stop at nothing to break you out. 
because he stopped at nothing to break out Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. I would love for you to follow along. This is, uh, this is an awesome story. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, but Daniel chapter 4, and we, we revisit in part 4 of this series. It's my heart that at the end of our time together, you're going to have this, this knowledge and even more than that, this wisdom of knowing uh, the story of Daniel because somebody once said, it's wise to learn from your mistakes. It's even wiser to learn from other people's mistakes. <laughs> learn from King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we, we pick it up, and the fiery furnace story of last week was a very long time ago. That was a distant memory. Daniel 4, chapter 4, we pick it up, and the king of Babylon is actually writing himself, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's writing this uh, firsthand. He goes, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at home in my palace contented and prosperous. He, he's a palace, and he's walking around. Things are going really, really well. He's a 3P person. He's power, prestige, possession. He's got it all. You know, j- just a note on the palace, he, he's, it's, it's got the new palace smell to it, right? Like he just built it. It's in the southern part of his kingdom. It's new. Nebuchadnezzar is doing something in these moments that very few kings had the opportunity to, to do. He's thinking about his retirement plan. Kings in old times, kings in ancient times, did not have, rarely had the opportunity to think about retirement. Their retirement plan was a was a wood box in the ground most of the time. But he has got a son whom he adores and cherishes, and he's talking about his co-regency with his son, and he's going to take over. Nebuchadnezzar can enjoy his possessions, enjoy the stuff, and kind of live out the rest of his years in the time of being contented and prosperous. Things are going well. Verse 5. Tone change. I had a dream, he says, that made me afraid. As I'm lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. It's a, it's a king. He's, he's got another dream. And as we find out what the dream is, he, goes, he falls asleep and every night it hits him. There's this huge tree and this tree is so big. It's so wide. It's so vast. The tree covers the entire world. And it's like, oh, we've heard this one before. And all of the woodland creatures of the world, the birds, the little, the, the mice, the, the squirrels, they all find a home in this tree that's created. And he's like contented and prosperous. He's like, yes. And then a voice comes from heaven and says, cut it down. Cut down this massive tree, cut this, cut it right down to the stump, and may the dew of heaven fall on that stump. And may that stump not think of itself as a man, but of that of a wild animal. And it's, it, everybody's like listening to this story, and it's like, guy, it's not hard to interpret like what this dream is. You know, he calls his wise men, his enchanters, his magi, his magicians, right? His, his, his wise men, the people. And he's like, hey, massive tree, voice from heaven, cut it down, just a stump. What do you think it means? <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's like, we don't need to tell you what it means. Now, it's interesting, uh, none of the uh, astrologers told him. It's not that they couldn't, it's that they wouldn't. Nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news. Hey man, I think that tree is, is you, <laughs> I think it's your kingdom. I think you're going to get cut down. Nobody tells them except, well, except Daniel, except for the guy who in part one, chapter one of the story, learned to have a backbone. He learned a little resolve. And so Daniel goes in and he goes, I mean, 
I'm going to tell you. And this story takes place, and the, and the king is actually in the odd place of, like, comforting Daniel because he's white as a ghost. He's terrified. He's like, I don't, want, I don't want to say it. Don't make me say it out loud. And the king goes, just tell me. Lay it out for me. What does it mean? And Daniel kind of braces himself, and he goes, this is the interpretation of the dream, your majesty, verse 24. This is the decree that the Most High has issued against the Lord, my king. You'll be driven away from people, and you'll live with the wild animals. The stump is you. You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, probably years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And he gives them to anyone as he wishes. And he's like, Daniel, are you, you're telling me I'm going to lose my mind and I'm going to wander the field and I'm going to eat grass. This is like a metaphor, right? And Daniel goes, King, you put my friends in the fiery furnace. Was that a metaphor? (laughs) He's terrified. For a little while. With enough tours of his palace, with enough people in the room reminding him of his power, with enough influence that he gets to exert on a day-to-day basis, being surrounded by all of his possessions, He starts to forget the dream. Verse 26. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge two key words for our time this morning. Heaven rules. You don't want all of that to happen, king. This is my advice. Your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. And the, the advice really applies to him. It applies to all of us. Renounce your sins. Do what's right. And your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And and may it then go well with you. May your prosperity continues. He takes a few more laps around the palace. And this is a movie playing out. This is when the soundtrack starts to change. Verse 29, 12 months later. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal palace, royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Again, if this is a movie, not only did the soundtrack change, but if this is a movie, this is when he's like, I have built this thing by my power and my authority. Look what I have done. And you're like, oh no, don't go down there. Don't do that thing, right? Stay away from them. Stay away from him, right? This is dangerous. Warning lights, warning lights. Turn around immediately. Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. And for something to be taken from you, it had to be given to you in the first place. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 32, you'll be driven away from the people. You'll live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times, probably years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign. You can see a pattern developing here over all kingdoms of the earth. And he gives them to anyone as he wishes. Immediately, what he has said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from the people and he grasped like the ox. His body was drenched in the dew of heaven. His hair like the feathers of an eagle. His nails like the claws of a bird. And you're like going, does this really happen? Yes. 
Boanthropy, it's, it's a real thing. It's very rare. It's a real thing. Thank you, Wikipedia. You can read all kinds of articles about this. A dude in the UK suffers from this very thing. Right? He runs away, and he's like, he's like wandering around in the, in the royal residence. They're trying to like hide him from everybody else. Like, no, no, no. Like, you know, the emperor is still wearing clothes, right? Like, like we're going to be okay. And, and they try to like, you know, sequester him off and have his own little garden over there so that nobody else realizes exactly what is happening. But listen, anytime there's people around, anytime especially where there's these lower level employees around that are watching as their mighty king Nebuchadnezzar is like eating grass and he and thinks that he's an animal and his hair looks like feathers all around, like word gets out and word starts to spread. And as it does, God breaks into history. One more time in verse 34. At that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes, my animalistic kind of eyes, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. Because, because, because everything He does is right, and His ways are just. And the takeaway of the story, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It doesn't take very long to land that particular plane, does it? Like we just have it in Daniel 4. Look at everything I have done. Look at everything I have built. Look at the fact that I am a 3P person. I'm the most 3P person of everybody. And he loses it all by the most bizarre, the most abstract, the most out-of-this-world way possible. And I think that's intentional, too, because it's like Daniel is communicating. No, no, God is communicating on the other end. Listen, if you think that you are exempt from all of this, look at the extents that I would go to to break you from that particular prison. At this moment, it is my sincere hope, sincere prayer that all of us would just take a moment and think about that fact. What extents would your Almighty go to to break you from that particular kind of pride? Not when things are going badly, but when things are going well. I hope this is a lesson that's learned sooner rather than later. I hope that this is a lesson that we can look at and say, it'd be wise to have to experience this myself and learn the lesson. It's wiser to read the story of Nebuchadnezzar and to learn it from him so I don't have to experience something like that. But several years goes by. And even though the story circulated, even though Nebuchadnezzar wrote his story down so that everybody would remember it and everybody would benefit from the wisdom of his crash and burn and subsequent resurrection, they forgot. Years later, decades, decades later, Daniel is now, he's 70 years old. He's He's an old man. He's lived in Babylon almost his entire adult life. You kind of get the extent. He's not playing games anymore. He's not afraid of what the king thinks. He's like, what is life? I'm just going to lay it all out there. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be honest. Things in the kingdom are a little bit different. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son. It was his grandson that took over. Uh, he, he was his king 
a part, uh, part two of our time together, the statue story. Some of you might remember that one. There's this gold head, silver, silver chest, which is the next kingdom down. The, the Persians, Persians are knocking at the door. Uh, the, the statue is transitioning from Babylon to Persia. The king goes out, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, grandson, he, he goes out, he fights against Cyrus that they're now calling Cyrus the Great, the Persians, uh, historical stuff. Uh, battle after battle after battle, the Babylonians are experiencing something new to them. They're not winning, they're losing. They're losing badly. And the, and the Persians are now closing in on this capital city, this Babylon, this new palace that's now kind of an old palace where the, where the grandson reigns from. And they're surrounding it you know, on every side. And so, and so the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, he goes out onto the field, takes the best army that he has, and he's going to make a final stand for his city. And he fights, he fights dead on Cyrus the Great. And once again, he loses. And he's taken into captivity. And Cyrus the Great and the Persians surround the great city of Babylon. And the local leader who is in charge of Babylon, the mayor, is now de facto the king. Belshazzar, his name is. He's looking around. And whatever stories he heard about his most recent king's grandfather and the lessons that he learned are now long forgotten because he's going, this city is impenetrable. You can't take it. Nobody has ever taken this great city. It's got higher, thicker, better walls than any other city around. We have a, a river that actually goes and flows under the walls into the heart of this city. We can last inside of this city not for weeks or months. Listen, we could go years. We could go decades. We could grow our own food inside the city gates. We're fine. Cyrus, you're left on the other side of the wall. You're going you're gonna to starve to death. You're going to thirst from death. If you wait long enough, you're going to freeze to death. We've got it made. And so Belshazzar, he comes back into his, into, his, uh, into his kingdom. He comes into the banquet hall and he decides to throw a party to celebrate how he is now the king. In chapter 5, verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Meanwhile, Cyrus is on the other side of the walls, waiting, conspiring. Verse 22, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets. Nebuchadnezzar, and it says his father, it's actually his grandfather, it's just kind of how they wrote back then, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, might drink from them. They are making a mockery of the, of the worship tools, the worship instruments that they had taken in the siege so many years ago that led to Daniel coming into Babylon in the first place. Verse 4. As they drank wine... They had the audacity to praise the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and stone. And Daniel's God, Yahweh God, had just had enough. And suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, the specificity here, near the lampstand in the royal palace. I think they all remember that day and the party 
just stopped. And the king watched the hand as it wrote out some words that nobody could read. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees became weak and his knees were knocking. What's it mean? And we don't know. Some people think it maybe it was written in a different language that they can read. Uh, some people think that it was actually written in the, in the Hebrew language. What, what does it mean? None of us, none of us know what it means. And they're all there. Belshazzar's wives, plural, and concubines. One of the wives, I think it was like the one who's been around the longest. I think it was the first one. The, the, she comes in and she comes in laughing at him. And she's like, Belshazzar, dude, you can fix this. He goes, she says to her husband, she says, stop worrying. Don't be so anxious about this. There's a solution right in front of you. Verse 11, there's a man in your own kingdom. And this is why I think that she was the one who has been around the longest. She kind of untells, she, she tells like the Nebuchadnezzar story and all the dreams, the interpretations one more time. She kind of sums it all up in verse 12. Call for Daniel. I mean, this guy is like in his probably late 70s by now. Call for Daniel and he'll, he'll tell you what the writing means. He can read these Hebrew scribbles on the, on the side of the wall by the lampstand. And then Daniel answered the king. Hey, listen, you're offering rewards. You're offering prizes and, and positions. I mean, I... I don't care anymore. I just want to go home. Keep all your gifts for yourself. Don't give your rewards to anyone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And I'm telling you, you could hear a pin drop in that room as he's explaining some of the contents context of the words that are written on the wall in front of him and he again for the second time he recalls the nebuchadnezzar story that we just heard about that the wife just explained and says maybe you don't have maybe it just didn't make it through your thick skull but we've been here we've learned this lesson in the past king you're a 3p person and your heart is overwhelmed with pride just like nebuchadnezzar's was verse 20 until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them against anyone he wishes. But you, and he points a finger and he puts it right into his chest, but you, Belshazzar, his son, grandson actually, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all of this, this is not the first time you're hearing this story. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven turns over above the lampstand and he points at the three words scribbled on the wall and he says verse 26 many this means god has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end tekel you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting paris your kingdom is divided and given to the medes and the persians by the way who are right on the other side of this wall as you called a party to celebrate And Cyrus, on the other side of this wall, unknown to all of them, had been planning this move for months. They thought this city could never be captured. The walls are too high, too thick, the gates too reinforced to ever get through. 
And Cyrus had his team of engineers take the river, the Euphrates River that was going into the city underneath the wall. And little by little, so small, so lightly, that nobody ever even noticed he was diverting the river to another river to start to drain the city. And the water level was creeping down and creeping down and creeping down so slowly that no one ever noticed. And unknown to anyone else in that room, while this party was going on, Cyrus sent his best special ops team, a diving team, armed with knives to swim in the river under the wall when the river got low enough and sneak up on the other side on the guards that were guarding those big reinforced gates to kill them and to open the gates and to let the Persian army in through the front door. And the Persians, you can expect, were ready for this. The king, as you can expect, was not ready for a battle inside of his city. In verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And you already know the takeaway. You already know that our lesson today is that the most high rules over every kingdom of the earth, including yours and mine. You already know that heaven rules You already know that there's a kingdom over your kingdom, but we haven't quite gotten to the place maybe where we see ourselves as as a king, as somebody with power, as somebody with possessions, as somebody with a level of influence, with some prestige, and we haven't seen sneaking under the walls of our own life the pride that made the story possible, that erodes it from the inside out. We know the story, and it's wise to learn from Nebuchadnezzar. It's wise to learn from Belshazzar. It's wise to learn from my very close friend who had to figure out that if you want to defeat pride, it's not an ownership of our stuff, of our accomplishments. It's a stewardship, not an ownership. You see, everything that we have, and we know this, it's temporary. Everything that we have, it's, it's short-lived. It's 50 years, it's 80 years at best, 90 years, I don't know. In the light of kingdoms coming and going, it, come on, it's so short. Like, you you kind of want to say this, like in the nicest way possible, right? When you're going into a meeting with somebody else maybe, and they're kind of puffed up and they're like full of themselves and they've maybe got a lot of power, got a lot of prestige, got a lot of possessions. And you, and you kind of want to like, like tap on the shoulder and be like in the nicest way possible. Like you're really, really puffed up and there's maybe a drift thing and a pride thing that I can see that you can't see, but like you know you're going to die, right? <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. It's not the most missional, you know, like uh, winsome thing to do, but, but like just think about somebody tapping you on the shoulder and be like, you know, it's temporary. You know there's going to be an account that's going to get called in. And you know you can learn from Nebuchadnezzar. You can learn from Belshazzar. You can learn from my friend who described himself, I want to get the words right, angry, hot-tempered, resentful, thinking that everybody else in the world is conspiring against me and the stress is like building up. 
until one day he's loading up his truck and his brain stopped working. There's a lot of grace in the story. God's grace is shown by the fact that his daughter, who was thinking about a career in speech pathology at the time, said, I think dad is having a stroke. There's a lot of grace in the story that his house is five minutes away from a hospital. There's a lot of grace in the story that it happens in the middle of COVID and there are no, uh, there are no appointments in the operating rooms. Everything is free. We can take this blood clot out of your brain immediately. And he's recovering. And the, and the therapists and the nurses and the doctors are like, you don't know how lucky you are. You're going to make a full recovery. And the person next to him who has suffered Similarly, without some of those blessings, did not. He could hear how the doctors and the therapists and the nurses were explaining how he's not going to walk again, how he's not going to have control over his bowels, over his bladder. Everything that I have, I'm not entitled to. It's on loan. It's the most high that rules over all kingdoms, including mine. Heaven rules. It was a short while after that that he read those words from Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis. I don't know why I had a stroke, but I do know you can't look up to heaven when you're looking down on everybody else. This is the hardest part of the message. Forget about Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, my friend. What prison is pride keeping you in? What prison is pride keeping you from? I'm going to dial a couple of numbers. This is up to you to figure out if it applies. But man, I have sat across from people in my office, in coffee shops, and friends, people at church, people who don't go to church anymore. And they're explaining how the last few years, like everything has crumbled. I have lost housemates. I have lost family members. My kid and I won't talk to each other anymore. And it's because of a difference of an opinion on politics. It's because it's a different difference of opinion on, on COVID protocols. Things that are so small now. But it's like because of my pride, it keeps me in this prison. It keeps me from having a son in my life. What's the prison that pride is keeping you in or keeping you from? I think of our Savior. I think of Jesus Christ. 
and the request put on his shoulders to leave the heaven that he loved with the fellowship of the Father that he adored and cherished and come to earth in Philippians 2, be obedient to death, even death on a cross. Are you kidding me? Can't you do this in a more dignified way, in, in a way that doesn't rob me and strip me of any kind of pride that I have as the deity of the universe? No. We're leading by example. You know, on the survey last week, thank you, by the way, several hundred of you took it online, folded eyes, Kenwood. A number of people said, I think that my next step, my courageous next step of faith is getting baptized. You said yes. And we promised anonymity, so you didn't get a phone call this week. (laughs) But your phone is ringing right now. I want to show the world that I've been raised with Christ through this awesome act of baptism. What is keeping you? I don't want to get wet. I don't want to get wet in front of like the most enthusiastic, supportive people on the planet about this thing. Come on. Encounterchurch.org slash baptism is your next courageous step of faith. What's keeping? What's pride keeping you from picking up the phone, calling your kid? calling your former housemate, your former best friend. Pride is keeping you from sending a text. Pride is keeping you from going on your knees before the bed at night or in the car before you started after worship today and picking up the phone and calling your Father in heaven in prayer one more time, restarting that conversation. It's a prison that God will stop at nothing to break you free. Because he loves you that much. He loves you that much. Church, I want to invite you to stand with me. Let's, let's pray to an incredible God in heaven today. Jesus, if we understand what you're trying to teach us in Daniel 4 and 5, this message terrifies us to the extent that we can wrap our minds and our hearts around the extent that you would go through to save us We don't want to be that guy. We don't want to experience all that. But God, you would stop at nothing. And we can see that in your son. You stopped at nothing to save us from ourselves. Help us, Lord, to break free from this prison. To pick up the phone. To call you to call somebody else, to recognize, Lord, everything that we have is just on loan. It all belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.